Michelle Donnelly, and this is the Christian Single Moms Podcast. I believe that every single mom can discover a life of peace, power, and purpose, and that you can do it right through the things that God is carrying you through in your season as a single mom. Here we talk about all of the things that matter to a single mom, but most of all, I hope you found a place where you feel like you belong. Let's get started. I'm so grateful that you could join me for this conversation today. I'm your host, Michelle Donnelly. We're continuing on in honoring Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and today our episode centers around raising children when their other parent is abusive. And I know for many of you, this is a reality. And the question often comes up, is it possible to co-parent in these instances? And to answer those questions, I'm joined by Joy Forrest. Joy is the founder and executive director of Call to Peace Ministries. Joy herself is a domestic violence survivor and has been an advocate since 1997. And while Joy does have a great deal of experience as a biblical counselor and holds a master's degree in biblical counseling, I think what you'll find most encouraging is her firsthand knowledge of what it is to experience these types of situations firsthand. If you're enjoying the podcast, would you take a moment and leave a ranking or a review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast? It helps other women to find our community and just let them know that there's a place that they belong. Also, down in the show notes, if you are new to the podcast, you'll notice a link to a quiz. It's called What's Your Loneliness Type? Loneliness is something that all of us single moms have to deal with, but the reasons why we deal with loneliness are different, and they don't necessarily have that much to do with whether or not we're in a relationship. So if you'd like to learn more about your own experience with loneliness, what's causing it, and then some of the ways out, go ahead and click on that link or head over to agapemoms.com forward slash quiz. I appreciate how Joy is able to help us look at the nuts and bolts of these types of situations and choose a strategy for communicating that works best for us and for our kids. Here is my conversation with Joy Forrest. Joy, so happy to have you with me today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. I appreciate being here. Joy, I wanted to know if at the outset of the conversation, you would tell us a little bit about what you do and your backstory as we step into this conversation about how to go about parenting when we have another parent who may be abusive? Well, the background for me is that I was a victim of domestic abuse for about 23 years of my life. I dated him all through high school and college, and we were married um, after dating for eight years. And then we were married for 15, where um, I was trying everything, everything to fix this broken marriage. Couldn't figure out what it was. We went to multiple counselors. And over time, it just got progressively worse and even violent. But I didn't call it domestic abuse until about the 23rd year. Mm-hmm. And that's when I finally recognized um, that he wasn't really losing control that that's what I thought he had grown up with a lot of trauma in his own, uh, you know, childhood. So 
I thought that he just really couldn't help himself. And I was always making excuses. But one day I finally realized with with some education, I finally realized that he was making a choice mm-hmm. and that he was doing it on purpose to control me. Um, surely the trauma played into it, but it didn't excuse it. or And that wasn't the reason for it. Mm-hmm. So recognizing it was, you know, very powerful. But the problem was that no matter who I reached out to, nobody knew how to deal with it. And so I think we went through at least a dozen counselors and pastors who couldn't help. And um, as I was getting out, I thought, Lord, if you help me live through this, because it was getting more and more uh, dangerous, I will help other women who are in the situation. And so um, I got out in 1996 for good. I left for good. And even though I was still open to marriage because a reconciliation because I truly didn't believe in divorce. And um, so um, I left and shortly after that, the Lord just started sending women into my life. Mm-hmm. And then in 2000, I was helping a woman and I took her to the domestic uh, violence shelter um, because her, the pastor of our church had told her that she was told her husband that she was staying at my house and he put us in danger. And so mm-hmm. I took her up there and, um, when I did, I told them a little bit of my story and asked them if I could um, help and volunteer at the shelter. So I ended up that led to a job at the shelter that I wasn't really looking for. And then in 2004, God called me to seminary. I ended up getting a degree in biblical counseling and um, started counseling within my church in about 2005 and kept seeing again you know, we're not handling this well. Even though I knew you shouldn't do marital counseling, it was still, it seemed like the goal of the counseling was reconciliation of the marriage. And so I still have regrets about some of the ways I handled that, um, even with my knowledge of domestic abuse. So um, in 2015, the Lord continued to prick my heart about the issue. And I helped found, I I founded an organization um, named Called to Peace Ministries. And um, we have a twofold mission to help provide practical assistance to those impacted by domestic abuse and to train and educate people helpers, pastors, church leaders, counselors, because none of them get much training um, on domestic abuse. It's just something that hasn't been talked about. In my own seminary training, I got 20 minutes on domestic abuse out of, you know, 90 hours of seminary training. Mm. So it's very needed. Yes, it's such a critical thing. There's just such a lack of conversation and a lack of education about this. And I think that's that's such an important word that you just said, even in your own journey, that for you to wake up to what the truth of what was happening in your own story was, education was essential for that. I know it was true for myself. And I appreciate, though, you stepping us through that entire story because I know there's a woman listening right now, Joy, who's like, that's me. And I'm even listening to you and I'm saying, wow, these experiences that we're having are so similar. But I'm also thankful for that because you just stair-stepped us through how God can take you through that. He can bring rescue and then he can bring purpose through the things that we've experienced. And I'm so glad that you've opened your life up to that because there's so much now that where perhaps our pastors aren't aware or other people, helpers, counselors are just really not aware of the correct and biblical way to handle these things, that we can be educated, that we can take the agency for ourselves and we can do the things that we need to do for ourselves and our children's lives. And as we move into that conversation, though, about our children's lives and how they continue to be impacted by this, if they're continuing to be raised by an abusive parent, 
Talk to me about this word co-parenting. A lot of women ask, can I co-parent with someone who's abusive? Really, what is the correct way to look at that? Yeah, um, I um, work with Dr. Deborah Wigfield, House of Peace Publications. We actually have joined together to provide advocacy courses um, for people who want to become advocates for domestic abuse victims. And she says, you can't really co-parent with uh, an abuser. You can parallel parent. And so it would probably be better to parallel different tracks, somehow um, educating your children and doing the best you can. And you will have to you have to work together to some degree for the sake of the kids. But we know that most abusive people want to control things. They often want to use the children as pawns. They don't really want to co-parent. They're not looking out for the good of the children. They're looking out for, they want to win. Mm -hmm. um, it's like a competition to them. Sometimes I've seen so many crazy situations where, you know, the, it didn't seem like the, the abuser cared at all about his children. You know, they are doing everything in their power just to get back at the mom who had the nerve to leave them. Mm -hmm. Right. So. Mm -hmm. And I think parallel parent is even a difficult way to understand this because so often that other parent is trying to intersect our parenting that we might be continuing on this straight line and somewhere they come out sideways and try to cross the path. And that can be very difficult for us to know what it is to say straightforward and our own direction. Can you give some guidance as far as parallel parenting is concerned, really what the mindset is behind that? Yeah. Well, I think that the mindset has to be, I'm going to do what's best for my children. I, um, within the, the bounds of my court order, because mm -hmm. if you don't follow that, you could get in a lot of trouble. And so again, learning not to react to him, because when we react, it will blow back up on us. We will look like the one who is out of control. And mm -hmm. so maintaining calm is so important. And, um, just educating your children. You can educate your children on what is healthy and unhealthy without say, bashing their dad. Mm. And so um, I think it's just really important to learn how to maintain your calm and work on your own healing. You can't be a good parent if you aren't healed and you're uh, just um, very, very reactive all the time, which is what happens to a lot of women who've experienced domestic abuse have to have been physical abuse, just emotionally abusive. We know there was a study done, I think it was probably in the early 90s, there's a book called Healing from the Trauma of Domestic Violence. And they did a survey of women and found that over 80% of women who have experienced domestic abuse, and that would be anything on the power and control wheel, if you're familiar with that. It's just these mind games, uh, manipulation, financial control, isolation, all those things that we find on the power and control wheel. If they're happening, we end up a lot of times with post-traumatic stress ourselves. And so we have to work on our own healing first in order to be able to be a good parent. And I know it's really hard um, when you're still, you've still got barbs coming in your direction, but mm -hmm. um, it is, it's super important to work on um, your own healing if you're going to parent well. And at least let your kids know, I'm working on this. I know that I'm not there. Be honest with them. And mm -hmm. I think that they will respect you a lot more. A lot of times, I think we want to keep things from our kids. And what we do is we end up, I mean, first of all, they're not stupid, but we end up, they get upset with us because they know we're not telling them the truth. So it's mm -hmm. better to be honest in a way that, again, is not bashing the other parent. I think that's so critical what you just mentioned, because there's power in that for ourselves to know I can educate my children 
on what's healthy and unhealthy. I can be transparent on where I am on that journey of what's healthy and unhealthy. And I don't need to necessarily bash the other person. If I'm just giving them perspectives, they have the ability to start putting pieces together as they grow up to figure out, okay, if this is healthy and this is unhealthy, what is my mom doing or what is my dad doing? And where do they fall on that continuum? And I think there's a piece of that too in that transparency that builds that trust that they can know, hey, I do see these things. And so it's not where we could go one or the other and give them too much information and they kind of distrust us as to like, why are you telling me all this stuff? Or we give them not enough information and then they feel unprepared. They feel like they're going to be blindsided. It increases their anxiety about the situation. But within the bounds of what we are responsible for and what is our duty to take care of. And unfortunately, though, that sometimes means we have to let go (laughs) of what we see happening and we have to know where the lines are with that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But one thing I do want to talk about is the fact that though we may be out of relationship with this person, there may have been a divorce, there may have been a breakup, whatever the case would be, the abuse does not stop. It does not go away. And it becomes something that women become very discouraged by and frustrated and maybe unsure about how to deal with this. So you kind of gave a a good key there as far as learning not to react. How can we continue to step forward in the things that we know that we're called to do without continuing to feed into this power struggle? Yeah. Well, I think for me, there was an eye-opening moment when I realized that my reactions were hurting me. They were hurting my children. So knowledge and recognition is the first step, I think. Um, But, you know, because what will happen is that people helpers will see us reacting and they'll think that we're the problem. I just remember um, my pastor bringing us in for marital counseling. You know, back then I didn't know that is not a good idea. So I go in and um, I remember my husband looking at me and going, you don't really even care about me. You just want to look good in front of him. So I thought I would prove that that was not the case by cursing <laughs> and yell and saying, I don't give a bleep what he care, what he thinks. And of course, then after that, my pastor's attitude towards me changed completely because he thought this is a two-way street and, and we don't want that happening. And the other thing it hurts, it hurts our children. Mm-hmm. When our children are seeing both parents being reactive, how are they going to know anything besides re- being reactive? Mm-hmm. And so um, understanding that we need to be able to at least work towards not being reactive. I know it used to upset me to know in that he would accuse me of things that weren't true. And I would try to react and defend myself. And I would just overreact really, because when you've got PTSD, you overreact. Yes. And so it really was counterproductive. And finally, just over time by um, trial and error, because I just, he would call and talk to me for hours on end and scream and yell. And I felt like I needed to keep him on the phone so that I knew where he was when he was that angry. I didn't want him coming out and, you know, doing us all in. And so I would listen. And um, the more I talked, the worse it got. And so I realized that not talking was better. And then when I finally gave him a flat response, eventually he would just calm down and stop talking. Mm. And so when we feed into it, when we allow them to push our buttons, I tell people I call, it reminds me of a toxic vortex. Like it's like you put your foot into that vortex and they will suck you in. And, mm-hmm. and so reacting is putting your foot into the vortex. And then there's, there's no way there's going to be a good outcome. You have got to um, 
show enough self-restraint to, to not react. And when you do that, it actually gives you the more of the power in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, when you give into that, when you react, it gives them all the power. So understanding that is really important. And, um, you know, I think that once we grasp that concept, then we can do our very, we can at least by our own willpower, do a whole lot of not reacting. I had a woman I worked with years ago and she was very reactive and the church had been counseling her and, and her husband for probably 12 years. And everybody in the church said she was the problem she was on. He, of course, he made sure the church knew that she was on any anxiety medication and all these things and that she wasn't stable, that she had postpartum depression, all these things. And so she would every time he did something, she would go to the church and let them know what he was doing. You know, this isn't right. He's not giving us any money for groceries. She had two kids and diapers and he was giving her like. $40 a week. Um, she had four total four kids, but two still in diapers. And, she, and he wouldn't give her enough money to, to eat um, for the week and, and definitely not enough for diapers or um, I don't know if there was formula, but there was definitely not enough money. And so she would tell the church hoping that they would help. And instead they just saw her as hysterical because he would do things like, oh yeah, I left her a check, you know, but he didn't tell her where the check was. All these mind games, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. Anyway, long story short, I ended up helping her not react. I said, I know that you're going to want to scream. I know that you want to react, um, but wait. And even if you have to call and scream and talk to me later yeah. <laughs> and uh, just to vent. But as she learned not to react, guess what? Her husband started reacting to that and he showed himself. He showed his true colors, but that wouldn't have happened as long as she continued to react. In fact, one night he had their 12-year-old daughter record her screaming at him after he had poked and poked and poked and poked until she finally did blow. Mm -hmm. So again, it's not helping us at all. It's, mm -hmm. it's really hurting the whole situation. I think what's so critical here, and you point to this over and over, is that there's power being exchanged here. And you have a personal power that nobody can take from you lest you give it to them. And our reaction is currency in these situations. So when we understand that this person's ability to continue to do the things that they are doing without being held accountable some lies in your ability to manage the situation in terms of being able to properly bring forth the evidence. And that if you're not able to communicate that in such a way, unfortunately, because people don't often understand these dynamics, like you said, they will look at it as like, oh, well, it's a 50-50 equation. You're doing it. He's doing it. It's both of your problem. And abuse is always a choice on the abuser's part. It is always their way of relating to people is abuse, is manipulation. And so if you ever want that to come out, it's sort of that Unfortunately, it's sort of that thing where a lot of women are going to be told, well, you just need to be a better wife. You just need to do the best that you can do. And when we learn, though, not to react, we retain our power. We retain our peace. And then, as you pointed out, we get the ability to show, look, I'm doing everything that I can do to keep my house in order and nothing is changing. And it just, it, it develops a trustworthiness, I think, between people who may not be aware and may not have the ability to discern really what's going on here. And that if you're not feeding into it, they will continue to react, but you're not. 
And so it creates a much clearer picture of what's going on here. And it's not about trying to have power over the person who's abusing you. It's about retaining your own personal power that you have in this situation and showing them the truth of what is really happening. And it's unfortunate, as you mentioned, with PTSD and things like that, sometimes these things just come out. And it's very, very difficult to say, wow, the onus is on me in this situation to start doing the work, but it's good. It is good, good, good work. And it's work that will continue in that healing journey. But Joy, as women are are dealing with these situations though, they might still be in them. If they're co-parenting, quote unquote, parallel parenting, that sort of thing, there may be these instances where they're feeling like they're being baited. So what are some strategies in the moment to keep us from reacting? Well, I know folks have heard of gray rock, yellow rock. Now they've got all sorts of rocks. (laughs) I have a workbook that I wrote for our our support groups, um, the Call to Peace Companion Workbook, and I just call it the power of disengagement. Mm. And so disconnecting yourself from the emotion um, of it and treating him like a business partner or or somebody, even a stranger on the street, because they can get to us because they know us and they we've been uh, we've had intimacy with them and so at least yes intimacy right right. (laughs) we've been close to them right and so um they know how to get to us a whole lot better than a man a person on the street might be able to but um being able to disconnect as best we can and you know respond as we would to somebody who is a a complete stranger you can still be polite you don't have to be mean Mm -hmm. you can continually repeat make it a mantra i'm sorry you feel that way or i'm sorry that's how you see it i've spoken the truth to you. I've already told you what the case is. And I don't, I'm really not going to stay here and listen to this. There are just what I would call, I wouldn't call call them can, but there are just wise responses that you can give that are saying to him, you know, it is not okay. It's basically drawing a boundary, mm-hmm. um, which we know can also make an abusive person way more angry, especially when you're still with them. But hopefully this is for single moms. So I'm assuming that most of them are not. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get yourself into a dangerous place with these folks. You don't uh, spend time alone with them. If you're going to meet them, meet them in public. Um, and if you're going to have communication with them, then you do it on something like talking parents or a an app that will record in the entire conversation. And then even then you've got time to stop. You do not have to give him a response right away. Mm -hmm. You can stop, think about it, pray about it, and then give a wise response. Even ask people that you trust, um, wise people who have a knowledge of domestic abuse, how should I respond to this? Give me some Mm -hmm. ideas. That's good. Um, And so um, that's the most powerful way to do it is to to have it done mostly through writing. So then you've got um, evidence if you ever have to go to court. And then also it gives you the time to gather yourself before you actually respond. Mm. You know, when when it's in person, that's going to be the hardest time. But again, being very careful about how you end up seeing him in person, uh, maybe during exchanges and doing that in a place that you know is safe and that he will not be able to drag you into a situation that's uncomfortable. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important what you just said as far as taking the time there and that you don't need to give a quick answer. And and I think those canned answers, as you said, sometimes can be very helpful to say, you know what, I need some time to think about this. And if if the person persists, you can say, well, I'm sorry, I need some time to think about this and just keep asserting that boundary. And it makes it though, also it's good practice if we're not great with boundaries, with learning how to 
do that and how to uphold those. And then you can walk away from the situation. You can throw a little fit with your safe people, or, you know, you can pray and you, I mean, and you can be straight honest with God and say, I don't like this, or I don't know what to do here, you know, and he does meet us in those things. But if you walk into these exchanges knowing, all right, this could happen. Time is a good thing. And I have the right to take it. Then we have kind of a roadmap and a game plan, at least for how to start walking into these kind of experiences. Yeah. And I tell the ladies in our support groups, you know, we cannot um, just change the way that we respond automatically. We have to think about it, practice it. I used to pray about it. You know, um, I had to learn later in life and I had to stop and think, okay, so if this happens, what am I going to say? Think it out, even write it down in my journal. And sometimes, you know, when it um, involved having to confront somebody, because, you know, a healthy relationship, sometimes you have to confront. And so there have been people in my life since then that I've had to confront about something or to draw a boundary. And I've had so much fear about that because I had sort of been conditioned to be a victim at, you know, for 23 years of my life. And so, you know, for me to be able to think it through ahead of time, I knew what I was going to say. That makes it a whole lot easier than just going on the fly. That's so true. I'm so glad you mentioned that though, because this is sometimes learning to be a new way. It is a total departure from the way that we've always done things. And it can feel awkward, but it is practice. It's something you can rehearse and it's something that you can try it out. And if it feels foreign or awkward, it's okay. You're probably going to have some more opportunities to work through it to a point where you do become more confident though, in your ability to handle the situation. Yep. Joy, if our children are being exposed to things, though, that we are opposed to, and we know that this is happening in this other house while our children are apart from us, how can we handle situations where we know that there's some unhealthy things that are being put in front of our kids? Well, it's really sad that we don't have control over that. What I have um, learned is that we teach our children, again, what is healthy, what is unhealthy. There are books and websites that talk about giving your kids resilient skills. And so I would look into those things, um, educating them as best you can. And also, it's really important, I think, because at some point, if if it becomes dangerous or abusive in its own right, then you need to have documentation. So making sure that you're documenting everything. Um, I, I would not, one thing we that Dr. Deborah teaches in our advocacy classes is that you can't just go on the bandwagon and go, he's abusing my kids because the courts are actually trained that that's, that's a red flag for a judge. If you go and call it a, a abuse, they're going to very often say, oh, this woman is trying to play the abuse card to get her kids. And so it's better to describe behaviors. If you you got your kids in with a good therapist who understands domestic abuse and the dynamics, it's so important. And you can um, look into that just by doing a search on psychology today and seeing if they have experience with domestic abuse. And you can even ask them questions before you take your kids there. Mm. Um, and I know sometimes they don't have the choice of who the therapist is going to be. So you go and do the same thing with that therapist. You describe behaviors. I've 
found that when women act like they're just kind of like, this is just, you know, the way he's acting and act perplexed about it instead of angry because anger doesn't play well either Mm -hmm. when you're talking to people helpers. So um, having a a therapist who can help document what's going on and having the children talk to the therapist about what's happening, you can cue the therapist in on what's happening again, not calling it abuse if you can help it. And so um, keeping good records And then at some point, I know that we have a woman that we work with who actually brought in a parent coordinator because he was giving such a hard time. And again, having a parent coordinator who understands domestic abuse, because it's uh, counterintuitive, we know that it's you've really got to be careful to get people who are trained and understand Mm -hmm. the dynamics or Mm -hmm. a lot of times it can blow up in your face. Mm But she got a parent coordinator and that parent coordinator saw it. And so now this guy who had almost 50-50 custody, um, she's recommending that they give primary custody to the mom and only supervise visitation to him. Mm -hmm. And this is because of what has been happening with the therapist. The therapist sees what's going on. And it's taken a while. And sadly, damage has been done to these kids, but they are resilient and I see them already beginning to um, heal and improve because she's learning and herself and teaching them how to be resilient and how um, healthy relationships should look. Mm, I think that's very powerful what you just said as far as teaching our kids to be resilient because there will be instances, there might be a woman listening right now, for example, that her ex will not consent to the children seeing counseling. But if you are taking care of yourself and you're becoming resilient and you are growing, you have the ability to learn communication skills and teaching skills that can help lead your children in the right direction in the case where that professional counseling may not be an option. Yep. Yeah. For a woman though, who's in that space, what would you recommend? Well, again, just, um, Becoming healthy yourself, teaching the kids what you're learning, being an example to them, trying not to be reactive around them, because if they see you reactive, then they're going to mm-hmm. be the same. That's mm-hmm. what they know. Mm-hmm. And so being calm when they start yelling and blowing up that you don't react even to them, because a lot of times we see it with um, many of the women we work with that their kids become very explosive um, mm-hmm. and even abusive themselves. Mm-hmm. And so um, you basically have to try to be the rock, the, the, the one who is stable in their life. And if you can do that and you can maintain your calm. Um, then eventually I think they they will learn from it. But you've got to also understand that they are probably traumatized too. They also are dealing with post-traumatic stress. So even teaching them strategies to deal with that trauma, the um, deep breathing and tapping and things like that, that we know can help or just calmly taking a deep breath, praying. Um, If they're not upset with God, I've seen a lot of kids upset with God because abusers will often use scripture as a weapon. Mm -hmm. But just being able to help them move from reactive to calm and telling them, you know what, I used to have that issue. I I was very reactive too. And then I found out it was really not helping anybody and it was hurting people, Mm -hmm. even you, it may have hurt you. So being honest and vulnerable with your children um, to a point, again, not bashing or blaming the abuser because that can backfire. Right. Right. I think that's important too, as far as this vulnerability because it creates a a space of acceptance that our kids can know that the reactivity that they're experiencing, this trauma response that they're experiencing, it is 
a protective mechanism that is a natural response to the things that they've gone through. We can learn to move past those things when we're triggered. We can learn new coping strategies to get through them, as you mentioned, but it just creates that safe space to say, I know you're feeling this way and I'm not going to walk away from you. I'm not going to be you know, moved by the situation. We're going to get through this together. And that creates such a place of healing that despite what's going on in the other house, your house can still be home base. Yeah. And I think too, looking for opportunities when they're more um, calm to talk to them and talk things through that you let them know um, that you love them no matter what. Um, And if you blow it, you say, I blew it. And I didn't mean what I said. I know um, coming out myself that my daughter said, I hate you. And one day I just said, I hate you back, you know, and I, oh, I was so upset with myself. But, um, you know, again, being overly reactive when you've got post-traumatic stress. So I tried to calmly tell her later, you know, I didn't mean that. And I am really sorry that I said it. You know, you can't take back the words that you've said, but you can at least apologize and let them know that you're that you regret when you make a mistake, because I guarantee most abusers don't do that Mm -hmm. unless they're like caught with their hand in the cookie jar and they have to. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, and I think then the other part of this too, is if they see us working and making change that when I apologize, I say, sorry, but then I do something about it and I communicate to you, I went to counseling or, you know, something like that, that they start to see that you're taking steps. It's not just an apology and, you know, this kind of quick remorse, which can be an abuse tactic. It can be a manipulation so that they can start to see, oh, wow, you know, she says she's sorry and she puts steps to it. And that just just such a trust builder. There's so many opportunities in those times, even where we do make mistakes that we can actually grow and be a model for our kids in their own working through of trauma and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's very good. That's very important. Mm. I'd like to take a short break from our conversation to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is Christian counseling that is available on the go. And it works through an app where you are able to schedule video sessions or just chat with your counselor throughout the course of the week. And I found that having the combination of Christian teaching and counseling together was so encouraging and so healing for me. If you have been considering Christian counseling and you would like to give Faithful Counseling a try, you can get 10% off of your first month by going to getfaithful.com forward slash single mom. Joy, for a woman who's experiencing a circumstance where perhaps there is some animosity that her ex is creating, that it's clear that the children are being turned against her, what can she do? Well, as we talked about earlier, I think that educating them is important about what healthy versus unhealthy looks like um, and continually being um, of strong character herself and trying not to be reactive because the more she reacts, the more that's going to prove the point the abuser is trying to make. Mm-hmm. And um, even if she knows that he's telling things that aren't true, just setting the the facts out and saying, 
So this is what, and you might not even say this is what it has, or this may have, this may have been what has been said mm -hmm. rather than your dad is saying this and he's a liar. We don't want to do it that way, but mm -hmm. just say, and you remit the fact is about this situation. These, this is what happened. This is the truth. You remember that? Or uh, I know that Dr. Deborah actually has a journal for kids um, mm -hmm. that they can journal. And in her journal, she has things like before the separation, this parent took me to the doctor after the separation, mm -hmm. you know, so she has them think through all of the things that happened, you know, pre and post separation. So helping them think through, they could get that book. I wish I could remember. It's, um, she's got one called Darkness to Light. It's a journal, um, but there is a, a book for children that I can um, give you the information on yeah. it, that helps them to journal um, and, and think through because they have to come to these conclusions for themselves. We cannot tell it tell them this is what the fact is. Mm -hmm. They have to have enough reasoning skills. And so that's where the education and um, teaching them to be calm and to think things through logic. I mean, just giving them some logic, mm -hmm. uh, think about this. Let's think about the way this, this has been presented and helping them think through all the facts and come to their own conclusions rather than um, just listening and believing everything that mm -hmm. someone has told them uh, when there are no facts behind it. So teaching them to be reasonable and to be rational and to think things through and to draw their own conclusions. I think these critical thinking skills you're pointing to are so essential because abuse really defies logic. It does not make sense. It really doesn't. It doesn't even operate in the world of sense. And so we're manipulating all of these emotional experiences, but really if we just looked at the facts and we just we took the emotions away from the situation, the facts kind of explain themselves. And that's where we have the ability to give our kids here's information, here's a lens you can look at it through, but I'm going to leave that process to you. I'm going to pray over you like crazy <laughs> that you would see things clearly. But when they arrive at it themselves, there is so much more. It just, the experience is so different for them. And there is less of this sense of like, oh, well, this parent said this and this parent said this. And so I have to pick between them where they feel like they are in the driver's seat at that point of getting to decide what really is happening here. And overall, as much as we would love for them to just go with what we think, <laughs> that the experience of them sorting these things out helps them actually in the long term to be fortified against the emotional experience of this, because I think that's the thing as we're talking about, okay, you know, they might go to dad's house and dad might say, da, 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 but it's also an emotional tie-in where I've bought you this, or I take you to this place and your mom does not, or those types of things where there's all these doubts that get created. And the best way that we're able to help set things right though, is just to bring logic back to the table. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's even it, there is a whole lot of power in them coming to their own conclusions. It's even like faith. We can uh, we can't make a decision for our children as far as having a relationship with God goes. And I know that a lot of kids who were raised in the faith when they get to college age or whatever, they may have a crisis of faith and they have to come to those terms for themselves mm -hmm. and, and internalize it. And they're not going to internalize it until they make that decision on their own.
Mm-hmm. You know, and and I know you that you know this, but trauma thrives so much on feeling unsafe and powerless. And so when we have the ability to give our kids information and a safe place to work that through, they start to gain sense in the world that they can make it, that they're not going to be a victim or that things are not just happening to them. And so whenever we have the ability to give them those things, that we're setting them up for success in those instances. But I think, and I want to make a critical point here, when we're talking about power, we're not talking about having power over someone else, not at someone else's expense, but as much as saying, the Lord has given me agency in my own creation, in my own life. He's given me dominion over myself and my emotions, and he's given me responsibility over caretaking in these instances. And so this is not at all when we're talking about gaining power in these instances. It's never at the expense of someone else as much as it is in connecting with God and with truth and with love. And if we're always approaching it in that direction, then we're going to end up making choices that are wise. Amen. (laughs) Just put an exclamation point right on that. (laughs) Nothing else I can add. (laughs) (laughs) Joy, as far as legal battles and things like this. Legal abuse is a real thing. And women may experience this a lot where they're being taken back for different custody arrangements and it's very expensive. And it can be hard to know where do I draw the line here? It can also be hard to know when do I need to enforce it if he's not holding up his end of the bargain as far as our existing arrangements go. Can you provide some framework there for how to handle these kinds of situations? As I mentioned before, it's usually counterproductive to call it abuse in court. Um, We actually have a whole class on um, court uh, abuse by abusers. So them using the courts as an abuse tool. And so we know it's, it's a big problem. And it's very important that you are able to find people and experts who understand domestic abuse, because we know so many times you'll get stuck in a system where maybe the attorney's not getting it, the guardian ad litem, whoever may be involved, even uh, child protective services. I've seen um, many times not understand the dynamics of domestic abuse. And you'd think that would be one of the first things they teach them in school, but not so much. Um, but again, um, you maintaining calm, you documenting things, having a journal and or a calendar where you're documenting incidences that may um, be important in court, using those uh, apps like the talking parents where you're, you've got a a record of what's been said and what's been done. Um, If something has happened at the abuser's house and then making sure that the therapist gets to talk to the child, it's also better, even if there is abuse going on a lot of times for um, the expert to be the one to report it rather than you or you to report it together. Mm -hmm. Because again, a lot of times the courts and judges have been trained to think that claims of abuse are just a a ploy to get custody. And um, so it's just important to be calm and wise and not to freak out, number one, and then bringing in the right kind of help. As far as when to take them back to court for so many violations, it's going to have to be significant, but that would be something that you would want to discuss with your attorney. Because again, if you go before the judge too many times, then they can think, uh, begin to think that it's frivolous mm-hmm. and that you're just being petty. So you want to have enough that it would be um, like a no brainer when you do go back to court um, if you if you um, have to do that. 
Um, I think a lot of times for many of our women, it's just like it is not worth the hassle mm-hmm. because we know it's kind of like grabbing a cobra by the tail when you take these guys to court. So you really want to make sure you have a, an airtight case with lots and lots of evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's so important what I'm connecting just all through this conversation that you've pointed to is the fact that we need to have wise counsel as we go through this. And because this can be a confusing and emotional experience that when we have those people who are trained in these areas with us, they have the ability to help us see really what needs to be seen or what is important or what maybe we just document for a while, but we need a track record or those types of things because we do want to be wise. And I I think that's so critical what you're saying. The Bible does say that we should be innocent as doves, but we should be shrewd as snakes. We do have to be wise in these instances. We are not out there to set somebody up for something that is false. But if we want justice to be done, there's a process to the way that these things are handled. Yeah. And um, at Call to Peace Ministries, we actually have trained about 300 people now in advocacy. And part of that is court advocacy. We probably have fewer than 100 who are doing it. But what we can do at Call to Peace is um, for somebody who's going through these kinds of situations, we can actually assign an advocate to walk alongside to help them sort through those kinds of things. Mm. Um, And then they have access, the advocate has access to Dr. Deborah, who in my mind is one of the best um, court experts out there. So um, she has a book too, by the way, I wanted to mention, it's called um, Eyes Wide Open. Uh, co-parenting with a control freak Mm -hmm. uh, parent. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can look it up. She has all sorts of things in there, like the types of questions you would ask an attorney, the types of questions you would ask a therapist, all these things um, that, that we have to really take the power ourselves. We have to advocate for ourselves. We have to get educated Mm. because honestly, just going and following our own natural instincts in this case, in a situation that is completely counterintuitive, Mm -hmm. um, even for us as victims, sometimes, you know, when, when I was a victim, I, my natural instincts did not do me any good. So getting educated, Educated and learning how to best respond, learning how to pay for yourself and to get the right people involved so that you can have a better outcome. Um, I know that the domestic violence shelters, I think the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence did a study and they found that women who have advocates have much better outcomes. Mm, so good. Joy, I am so thankful just for all the wisdom you've given in this conversation, it's extremely empowering. And I'm just so grateful for you as a champion. At the end of every conversation, I ask each guest the same question. And it is, if there was just one thing that you would want a single mom to know, what would it be? Well, I had to think about this a while. Thank you for giving me a heads up. (laughs) But I think I, at this point, have worked with probably at least 2,000 victims and later survivors and later victors of domestic abuse. And what I have come to uh, believe and see, I've seen it multiple times over, is that women who have faith have better outcomes. And I used to think, well... 
you know, no, it's not fair. It's not their fault that they don't have faith that they're traumatized. But, but that's what happened with me. I mean, I wrote about it in my book. I made a choice to start having faith because God was my only hope. And so I took scriptures and I plastered them all over the walls of my house. And when I felt afraid or when I felt like I was overwhelmed, I would go and just say the scriptures over and over and over again, like a mantra. Mm-hmm. And it changed me on the inside and it built me up. And I believe that I'm only an overcomer today because of my faith. And it, mm-hmm. again, it was a choice to believe. It was not that I had it naturally. Jesus says it only takes a mustard seed. Do you know how small that is? Yeah. But it's using that mustard seed of faith that we have. It's saying, I will hold on. And I remember through tears many times going, though you slay me, yet will I praise you. You know, I was determined that I was going to hold on to him because I knew I got out in the 1990s. There was no internet there. Well, there was, but not much. Yes, right. <laughs> no, no resources like what we have today. Mm-hmm. And um, so God was faithful and he was my only hope at the time. There is no way I would have made it out without him. And so what I have found is that the more I watch survivors who are moving forward and thriving, the ones who choose faith over fear will do better. Mm, Such a word. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Joy. Joy, would you tell listeners about your resources and Called to Peace and how they can follow you? Yeah, um, you can visit our website called to peace.org. So C-A-L-L-E-D and then the word to peace.org. We have various resources. We do have advocacy for those who want to become advocates. We have the classes and then we have advocates that we can assign to people who are in the middle or in the thick of things and they need someone to help them think through and process through. Um, We have a church partnership program that I'm really excited about. We have now three pastors on staff who will go in and talk to churches um, with a survivor if she reaches out to us and says, my church just isn't getting it. And we'll come alongside and help the churches and we'll support them and help them to get a better grasp on what domestic abuse looks like and how to respond wisely. And so that's been fairly um, successful. And I thought, always thought if I could have other pastors reaching out to pastors, it might be more effective. And that was very mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. So I would say that probably 75, 80% of the churches that we reach out to, it makes a difference in, a, in the outcome for the victim. And mm-hmm. that is exciting to me yes. uh, because when I was going through it in the beginning, churches were not getting it. So this has been really exciting. So we have advocacy. Um, we have crisis counseling that we can do. We have um, even an emergency fund. We have support groups. My goodness, that was the number one thing when we first got started our support groups is what um, we were doing in the beginning. And we were getting overwhelmed. Our very first year, 283 women reached out to us. Wow. Last year, it was about 2,000. Wow. And so we have exploded. But our, our support groups are scripture-based. Um, they're based on the Call to Peace Companion workbook that goes along with my book, Call to Peace. And so you can find all of that on our website or the books are available on Amazon. And... I can't think of anything else, but I'm sure I'm leaving something out. (laughs) No, that's okay. Did you mention social or website or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So our biggest social media platform is Facebook. We do have um, quite a few followers there. So you can follow us at just called to Peace Ministries on Facebook. And um, 
We do have a secret, uh, we call it a support group. It's really more of a forum um, that if you are interested in becoming part of that, you can message us through the Call to Peace Ministries page on Facebook and we will add you. So Great, great. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes to make it easy for the listeners. Joy, I'm so thankful for you and the work that you're doing. Thank you for your time today. Well, thank you, Michelle. If you found this conversation with Joy helpful, I would suggest a couple of other episodes for you. Check out episode 74, Don't Tolerate Toxicity, When and How to Walk Away from Emotionally Draining People with Gary Thomas. You'll also get a lot of support from episode 69, How to Stop Being Manipulated and Help Your Kids Avoid It Too with Tim Sanford. As we wrap up the conversation, I'd like to draw your attention to a couple of resources available for you in the show notes. The first is our guided scripture meditation that goes along with each and every episode that you can find at the Agape Moms YouTube channel. Also, there's a link there to follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Agape Moms and to join the private Facebook group, Beloved Collective. Lastly, if you'd like to spend some time reflecting in prayer on what you've learned in this episode, check out the link for our free podcast pages, journaling pages. Thanks for spending time with me today. I'm praying for you and that you would know that you are seen and you are beloved.